and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. On this show, we are covering all sorts of ways to help you improve your intimate relationships with the people in your life that matter most. And we've covered that from all sorts of angles. We've talked about sex. We've talked about communication. We've talked about the underlying currents of processing your past wounds with your current partner. And in today's show, I wanted to give you a special way of bringing all of that work together in a completely different way than you've ever experienced before. Now, today's guest, Dan Weil, is notable because he is one of the only people that was recommended to me by John Gottman. So you know that his work carries a certain kind of weight to it. And I'm thrilled to have him here on the show. He is the creator of Collaborative Couples Therapy. And what you're going to find is that his approach to dealing with questions of intimacy and how to create intimacy and what fights are all about um, is really different than probably what you've heard on the podcast. And, and if you've experienced uh, couples therapy, unless you've experienced therapy with people who have been trained by Dan, then it's it's going to feel really different. And, and there's something about this unique approach that I think brings a really dynamic quality of being present and alive and, yes, intimate with your partner. We're going to have a detailed show guide for today's episode, as always. And if you'd like to download it, you can do so if you visit neilsatin.com slash while, and that's W-I-L-E, as in Dan Weil. Or you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And I'll send you a link so you can download the show guide to this episode, as well as all of the other Relationship Alive episodes. Okay. So, Dan Weil, thank you so much for being here with us today on Relationship Alive. Glad to be here. Maybe we could just start off by talking about the collaborative approach. Um, it, it relates to how you collaborate with your clients when you're working with clients, and I think it also relates to the, the dynamic that you're really trying to foster between the couple when you're working with them. So what is collaborative versus what someone might be experiencing otherwise? Well, the big problem that couples have is they get into fights or they get withdrawn. And instead of um, having a collaborative exchange, an intimate exchange in which they work out whatever needs to be worked out and they reach out to one another. So that, that's the whole point. The whole point is to create a, a loving conversation between the two out of whatever is going on at the moment. Now, one thing that really struck me in your work was this idea that we have all of these skills that we've developed about how to communicate well. And, and in your book, After the Honeymoon, which is an amazing read, 
you detail a lot of these skills. And I think people who have listened to the podcast will recognize them from some of the other episodes we've had on the show. But then you go on to say that sometimes it actually makes sense to throw the communication skills out the window or to um, rather than avoiding a fight to dive into a fight and to, to mine um, those deviations for the gold, the, the clues that they give you about your relationship. So I'm wondering if hopefully I didn't totally misinterpret what you wrote and, and maybe you could give some examples of how that sort of thing could happen for a couple. Well, the, um, the problem is that when you're in a fight, the rules of communi- good communication go out the window. That is, there is no way to make an I statement when you're angry. You become a you statement generating machine. And you need to say always or never. If, they, if those words weren't invented, you would have to invent them yourself because you need some way to express how frustrated you are. You need to amp it up a little bit so that, um, you know, the big problem is the, the rules of good communication are good things to, to, to think about and to know exist. But uh, even more important is to realize that you're breaking them because when you're angry, you're going to break them. Because if you know you're breaking them, then you, you're not puzzled by why your partner's getting more and more upset. That is, that you, you'll realize that you're, you're being provocative. There's no way not to be provocative when you are in an angry uh, state of mind. Yeah, and maybe you could detail for a moment to those, the three states that you mention, um, adversarial, withdrawn, and empathic, and, and how someone could recognize which state they're in. Yeah, now there are fancy ways of talking about being angry, withdrawn, or collaborative. Um, so uh, when you're angry, it's a cycle, it's a vicious circle in which um, suddenly you have that tone and you begin to make an accusation, you statements come into it, um, or, and you get defensive. Matter of fact, when you're in an adversarial mode, all you can do is attack or defend. You really can't do anything else. And um, once you do that, your partner is going to respond in kind. So, you know, just in the course of an ordinary conversation, you're going along fine, and then one partner says something that has an edge to it, a a critical edge that the other partner is sensitive to. The other partner responds with a a counter complaint and they're off to the races and it can build up in quite quite an intense thing. And and the whole whole mind changes at such a moment. Uh, There's different biochemicals are operating. Um, I remember in um, uh, my girlfriend and I were having a fight which meant that I thought I was right and she was wrong. And I was saying, you know, angry and defensive things as you do when you're in a fight. And then all of a sudden she said to me, what would you say to us if we were a couple in your office? And I was able to say something um, warm and um, communicative that I was totally unable to before. Um, that changed the whole tone of things. I was able to speak for her and, and see her point of view and talk about mine in a, in a better, less explosive way. And uh, something that 
I was not in a state of mind that I could possibly do until she changed the whole tone by asking me that question. So that made me really aware of something grabs a hold of you when you get into a fight, into an adversarial cycle. Now, a withdrawn cycle um, has a similar kind of quality to it. Um, it's self-reinforcing in which the, the, the cautiousness and the, you know, avoiding saying anything provocative um, of, of one person can stimulate the same in the other, much as whispering can stimulate whispering. So there can be a kind of devitalization uh, occurring, a kind of mutual withdrawal. Then the, the third kind of cycle, uh, again, a self-reinforcing exchange is one when, when, when a person makes uh, an admission or um, an acknowledgement, <clears throat> an acknowledgement such as, you know, I've been arguing with you, but, uh, you know, I think you've got a point there. Or, um, you know, I'm, I'm saying this, is, um, uh, I'm saying a lot of things that I really don't mean. Um, and then the other person uh, immediately might begin to make acknowledgments of his or her own, talk about more tender feelings. And there can be a, a kind of a loving cycle that's going on. And that's what we're wanting in a relationship. We want to be talking about things important to us and get um, um, a warm response from that and have our partner do the same. And there is um, a very clear cycle of its own. I call it a collaborative cycle or empathic cycle, um, quite parallel to the adversarial or withdrawn cycle. Yeah, and in fact, that reminds me of the way that you define intimacy, which I think is also unique. So maybe you could talk for a moment about that for our listeners. Yeah, intimacy is saying what's uh, most deeply on your mind. What um, What's alive for you at the moment is what Marshall Rosenberg called it. And feeling it gets across to your partner and hearing the same from your partner. And what strikes me is that the way that like often people, I think they think that they're communicating that, but they're leaving out that that important first first truth. And um, I'm blanking on how you what you label it, but they, but the secondary truth comes out. So the the I feel lonely is what comes out versus. Yeah, go ahead. There's a leading edge feeling is the term I've used. Yeah. Um, which is, um, and I also talk about how um, an ongoing issue is loss of voice. Yes. That is loss of contact with the ability to really pin down what it is that is underlying what you're feeling at that moment. There's a great relief if you can get it out and if it's heard by the other person. And there's something kind of unsettling and incomplete if you can't figure it out. And if when you do try to say something about it, um, it, it you feel it doesn't get across to your partner. Right. Right. So can you give an example of how that leading edge feeling? Let's do let's do these two um, maybe back to back. So what's a leading edge feeling um, that someone might have delivered more wisely versus saying like, I'm really lonely right now, which would feel like a, a truth that you might want to, uh, you know, let your partner know about. Well, let's see. Um, uh, one of the problems with, I feel really lonely now 
is that it um, it can come across to your partner is um, my relationship with you is making me lonely. Mm. So, um, uh, right. You're not doing something that you should be doing right now. Yeah, that's right. That you're, um, I guess a better example is if you're saying I'm feeling abandoned has that kind of, it's an I statement that has a you statement hidden in it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's you're abandoning me. And so in a, um, a more subtler way, I feel lonely can have that also, that feeling. Uh, but that, 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 can be, that can be a leading edge feeling, I feel lonely. That can be what, what's on that person's mind at the moment. Uh, that, that there's relief in getting it said. Yeah, can we talk a little bit more then about the leading edge feeling so that people really get what we're talking about? Well, let's see. Um, It's, 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 it's a kind of thing that when you get it out, you get this sort of sigh of relief. And, it's, and it can be anything. It can be, it's usually a soft underbelly feeling like, like um, um, you know, I'm, I'm feeling lonely. That's a good one. Or, um, you know, at this moment, I'm feeling insecure. Or um, I'm, I'm a little, I'm feeling a little bit down, and I and I feel there's something wrong with me because I don't think I should be feeling down. Um, hmm. Yeah, you offer a great example of like uh, a couple dealing with one of the people thinking that they're really boring, and and how like actually voicing that like the leading edge feeling might be something like i'm worried that right now you're actually finding me boring or or the partner might say i'm i'm worried right now that i'm not going to be able to to truly show up in this conversation um with you yeah that's that's right so a person could be going on and on in an effort to be interesting and the, the more relieving thing, the, the leading edge feeling would be, I'm worried I'm not being interesting. Mm. So, so the, in other words, there's a, there's a fear um, or a wish. I, I, wish, I wish I could be more interesting. I'm struggling the best I can. I'm afraid I've lost your interest. But it could be real relieving um, to, for a person to, to, to pin that down and to say that and to, and to stop trying to be interesting when they think they're failing and, and just sort of say where they are really and what their struggle, what, what their inner struggle is at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And this gets at, I think your point about how every moment really offers you an opportunity to be intimate with your partner. That's right. There's, there's um, something going on um, in well, it'd it be, there's a struggle that people are having much of the time, not always, but much of the time that they're, they're trying to cope with, you know, like they're trying to like to be interesting when they feel they're not interesting. Um, but there's a kind of a relief in confiding the inner struggle that you're having at the moment, which could be in, in sex, it's an important thing too. It's it's like in sex, you could be uh, you could be struggling with you know I'm not getting turned on as I usually do, and I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you. 
that could be a thing you don't say because you don't talk much in sex anyway. But it's also something that can, you're afraid can break the spirit. But that would be uh, that would be there would be a certain relief in being able to confide the struggle you're having at that moment rather than just a sort of flailing around in that struggle. Right. And the so the fear I could see someone having would be like in that example you just offered. Well, if I talk about that, that's totally going to kill the mood. Yes, and it very well might. And so the, the person may decide not to do that. Uh, on the other hand, the person might not have much of a choice either because, you know, they're just not functioning well and it's not right. well and it's a big struggle and it's hardly worth it. And so to, to get some relief about that would be then to confide the, the inner struggle. And you would hope you'd have a sympathetic partner, a partner who would, who would actually, um, while maybe being disappointed, would also have some relief because your partner would be sensing that something wasn't working quite right. And to have it verbalized and in front of both of them, there's a kind of intimacy that can come from that. Mm. Yeah. Um, Bernie Affelbaum, um, my, uh, my mentor, and he also specialized in part in, in sex therapy, talks about certain, uh, certain examples, n- not always, in which saying, you know, I'm worried because I'm not getting turned on is so relieving that the person then immediately began to feel turned on. Right, because that um, that not being turned on, I could see that just kind of keeping someone in their head versus um, actually being able to get into their body or into their experience. So if they're if they're wrapped up in the I'm not getting turned on and this is going to be a problem and it's creating a problem and like then they're definitely not there in the moment with their partner at that point. Yeah, there's a whole theory of human experience here where much of the time we are having a struggle with ourselves, uh, whether self-blame or some type of self-concern we're having. Um, and uh, only a small fraction of what, what we're really going on in our mind and our inner struggle that we ever tell people. And there can be a, a great relief if every once in a while in important moments we're able to, to really confide that. There's such a big difference between, you know, what's going on, the thoughts, the ongoing thoughts, and what is actually said. And some yeah, cult- and- yeah. in, in, in some cultures, you're not supposed to talk about feelings at all. Uh, or there, in every culture, there's certain feelings you're not supposed to have. And so you, you don't talk about them. And in a way, you don't, uh, sometimes you don't, don't even know exactly what they are because there's not words for them even. Um, so the uh, one of the great things that that uh, a couple conversation or any kind of conversation ideally can do is to allow a further expression of the the lonely inner struggle that everyone's having all the time. Yeah, and I love in the book after the honeymoon how you make a, a great attempt at showing the outer conversation that people are having. In in some instances, it's a fight, and others, it's like the conversation they should be having. And and all the while that's happening, all of the inner thoughts that that they're having that are that are contributing to these. The, the little tips of the iceberg that they actually present to their partner. Yeah, that's, that, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, forgotten the, 
uh, the famous Woody Allen movie of um, Annie Hall, where in a certain part uh, where Woody is meeting Annie, and they're they're having this kind of formal conversation, and um, but, but but then you hear what each person is really thinking. So Annie Hall is thinking to herself, "Why do I have to say these silly things all the time?" And but but you know, you know she's not saying that, but she's coming out and saying silly things. So you can see the, the inner struggle there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Woody Allen is having his own. So that's going on all the time. Yeah, and. And it feels like there's a trap there, particularly the more that we know about, quote unquote, how to do relationship well. And I'm I'm kind of laughing at myself because that's, of course, what the point of this whole podcast is, is to help people. But I could also see it having this effect of, you know, now someone is sitting there thinking, oh, well, I, you know, okay, I shouldn't be feeling this way because I know that the right way to feel in relationship is, you know, I should be generous right now, or I shouldn't feel so pessimistic about the the party that my um, partner wants to throw or, um, and so people are, are potentially even trapped in that kind of self shaming place of feeling like, well, I'm not living up to the standard of what I know I should be doing in relationship. Yeah. Now, I don't know if it's true for everybody who knows about Donald Trump, but, um, but for a lot of people, and certainly for me, there, there is an ongoing um, negative evaluation or um, an ongoing um, um, a kind of kind of approach, or oh, I should be doing something this, something else, or I should be doing something different. It's a, it almost seems like there's something, some self criticalness gene in in everybody, or some people, or most people, uh, that give, gives them uh, dialing what they're doing, and um, and in a way, it's kind of understandable because um, each culture has its own way of how you're supposed to be. And the requirements are, are idealized. They're hard to they're hard to kind of meet, and don't really fit with a lot of the feelings you, you have. Um, so that there's this ongoing struggle. You know, I'm saying that the, the ongoing inner struggle is what's key here. And if there's a way to give outward expression to it, that's wonderful. Um, it may make sense since the. Um, and there's this, we've got this cultural ideal of how we should be, and we're always sort of failing at it, and we're kind of noticing. We're kind of noticing that and thinking we should be doing something else different this way or something different that way. One of the things, one of the good values of getting older is that um, in some ways there's um, often a greater self-acceptance. Well, you know, this is just the way it is as, as the decades go on which gives you some relief from the, you know, the more intense measuring people have with themselves, like, you know, in, in adolescence. Yeah. And, uh, I'm, I'm thinking too about how the, uh, the negative bias of the brain and how there, there would naturally be this, this reason for like, basically troubleshooting and seeing all the places where you you there are spots you should be looking out for so that you're protecting yourself from from injury and um and that you know we've talked about in the podcast as well that the the fights that adversarial stance 
is often what comes next after you feel like you're hurt. So you're already in that triggered state of fight or flight. So fighting or being withdrawn um, because the hurt happened. Um, So it makes sense from that level that you're always going to be on guard for, um, (laughs) you know, for your uh, your potential vulnerabilities being being poked by your partner. Yeah. So at any given moment, there is this soft underbelly feeling, this uh, feeling of I'm not measuring up or. Um, I wish I could be more elegant here or, um, and if you can't give words to it, if you can't figure it out and, and say it to someone who you feel comfortable will receive it well, you're stuck as a fallback measure, um, doing three things that are not great. You know, one is, um, uh, to turn um, a, a feeling you're struggling with into something your partner is doing wrong. So if you're say if you're feeling you know I'm kind of unlovable, you can say you don't love me. Mm-hmm. And um, if you if you're feeling you know I'm feeling guilty, you can turn it into and say you're trying to make me feel guilty. Um, so that's one of the ways we deal with it when we can't empathize with ourselves about this uh, leading edge feeling about this, you know, we lose our voice. Second thing we do is just get quiet and um, sort of say nothing at all or blank out and not even think anything at all if there's a way to do that. In other words, the way you deal with loss of voice, with not being able to get a hold of your leading edge feeling um, not empathize with yourself about it is to start a fight, begin to fight, or to withdraw. And there's a, a third thing you can do also, which is you can try to solve it by actions. Not always, not always um, such a bad thing to do. Maybe um, uh, because it, it can help some. But you, you can, you can, um, if you're feeling you're kind of uh, uninteresting, you can just try to talk more and more to be more and more interesting. Um, other actions, of course, aren't so great. Well, I'm not sure that one's so good either. Uh, not very effective. Would be to, you know, you, you drugs and alcohol to kind of dull the, the, um, the, the inner struggle that you're having at the moment. Right, or to make you way more interesting, at least in your own mind. Yeah, now that is a, that is a, some people seem to do that, which is they talk more and more and they somehow are feeling that they are being impressive. Now, some people are. Some people at some point they get in the groove and, and they get feedback from others that make it clear that they're really quite, um, you know, if they're feeling kind of insecure. Well, all of a sudden, you know, they're in the, that feeling that really coming across well. And there's other people who talk and talk and talk and, and somehow uh, don't notice or discount the fact that people are trying to get away from them. Mm. Yeah. And so I'm curious about um, if we're all at various times throughout the day, let's say having that leading edge soft underbelly inner struggle going on 
how do we get at it? How do we get in touch with what that is that's happening within us so that we can voice that to our partners? Well, let's see. Um, what, what, you, what you hope for, ideally, is, um, well, you can, um, at, at, a, at a certain moment, you might uh, become a little bit more empathic towards yourself, at which point you can figure out a little bit better what you're actually feeling. So there's a way of doing it by yourself. But there's also a way of doing it in the couple. So that if you find a way to confide a little edge of the distress you're having, and it gets a good response, and maybe your partner reciprocates by talking about a distress he, she is, is having, uh, then you may discover more about it. And you're, you're in, you're in a, a, a warm, facilitating environment, you know, in just in a discussion with your partner that allows you to step back from yourself and do and to figure out even more what you're really feeling. So that uh, that ideally is what happens in an intimate conversation, that you, you've got a, a more sympathetic environment than the one you can provide yourself, a more empathic, more compassionate environment than one you can provide yourself, and uh, in which case um, you can discover new things about you, your partner, and the relationship. Yeah, you have that great section in your book where you dispel all of the myths about how you have to love yourself before you can be in relationship and, um, you know, all the all the rules that that we might um, start paying attention to, particularly if we're not in a relationship or if our relationship is troubled, like somehow we're supposed to fix these things about ourselves in order to do relationship well. Um, whereas the gift of relationship being hopefully giving you um, that the safe groundwork where you can actually grow in those ways. Yeah, there's a danger of um, Connie um, uh, Applebaum um, once put it of um, an insight becoming a moral imperative, meaning that um, something like if you love yourself, that helps in being able to have a loving relationship. That's a grain of truth to that. But if it turns, but it so easily then can turn into, so you got to love yourself um, if you're going to have any hope at a, a, a loving relationship. And um, because the opposite is also true, which is the, the only way you can begin to love yourself is if you feel loved by another person. It's, you know, there's a grain of truth in both these things. And, and, um, and, 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 and just, just adopting, um, you know, one view or the other um, is, um, is, is, as I'm saying, taking it, something really useful, a useful idea and um, making it a rigid way to, to start haunting ourselves. Yeah. Something that surprised me in, in your book was the notion of dependence and independence and you know, we have talked on the show um, about attachment theory and that like the the biological imperative around um, how we rely on other people to help regulate um, our systems. Um, but I was also really 
I'm curious about this idea that we're we actually are dependent on each other and that it's really more a question of how skillful we are at being dependent. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, well, the whole um, idea of attachment theory um, is um, a sort of a savior to an old way that we used to criticize ourselves and others as being needy and dependent. And as if that's just not the way to be. You've got to be independent. You've got to be autonomous. And so attachment uh, theory is really helpful in fighting that off. By, um, all right. So I, I um, wrote this idea in the earlier days. And I guess it's still true, which is, you know, before attachment um, theory uh, came and become so strong. But it's um, um, when you think of dependency, the problem really is um, people who aren't good at being dependent. And this, is, again, is an idea I got from my mentor, Bernie Affelbaum. That is, if you're good at being dependent, people want to take care of you. You know, you present yourself in a way that they, they feel really rewarded in doing it. Um, so we're really talking about people who are ineffectively dependent or not good at being dependent when we use the word dependent. Um, that they they um, they make us... They, they, people recoil from, from us because we have a way of reaching out to others that turns people off rather than um, makes them want to um, take care of us or do things for us or, or be engaged with us. Yeah. And are there particular skills that, that you think are key to like being artfully dependent? Well, let's see. It's, um, it's one of those things that some people are just sort of naturally good at. And luck, the, the, you're lucky if you're sort of the, the way in which you reach out to people, um, it really engages them and they want to do it. And in the way in which you do that just turns them off. You, know, you get anxious and you don't do it well. And you get kind of pleading and acting in a needy way that turns turns them off. And um, I'm not sure the uh, how to develop a skill at that. I guess the what I mostly would do would would develop um, a way of standing back from yourself and being compassionate for yourself about your own struggle at the moment. So. Um, the, the goal would be, well, um, okay, a, a person saying to themselves something like, well, you know, when, I, um, when I'm not in a, uh, I'm going to make up a thing. When, when I'm not in a relationship, I'm just fine. But there's something comes over me when I get involved with a guy or gal. And um, uh, something comes out of me that I, I get kind of pleading and I show up on their doorstep and I can't really stop my, I become this whole different person. Um, what a shame that has to happen because um, it's, it's caused me so much grief. Um, I, I can empathize with a person who has a struggle like that. I wish I wish I had. I was one of these people who were just kind of naturally, you know, the way they are, people uh, in a relationship. It just sort of works out and people want to respond. Yeah, so it's like getting related to the fact that they're even having that struggle as as a start. Yeah, it is. Um, that's right. So standing back and seeing it, and hopefully having some compassion for it. 
mm-hmm. a, a hard thing to do. Um, matter of fact, you might have to step back one step further and, and say and lament the fact that you don't have compassion for being that kind of person. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that is, I, th- I think you name that as one of like the useful skills in collaborative couples therapy is, is helping couples step back and, and kind of get meta in their relationship to really see the problem, to see like how they're recurring issues, to actually collaborate around noticing, oh, here's our recurring issue again. And, or to, to step back even further from that. So, um, are, are there, are there hints for um, how would someone recognize like, okay, this is a time for me to step back and, and, and look at it from, from the outside. Well, whenever, whenever, whenever you're struggling um, um, is a a good time to do that. Now, the the thing I do in, um, in couple therapy is after a person has, uh, has talked in a, in a, um, discouraged way, I would, I would demonstrate what it might sound like if they were able to look at themselves empathically and talk about this problem. Or for the whole, if the couple were to look at themselves and empathize with themselves for the problem that they're having. Um, so I, um, but you know, that's something we can only do in, in um, you know, in therapy. Um, and how, how people can do it for themselves, I guess at, um, I guess they could sort of try to imagine, well, now what, if I were to look at the struggle I'm having from a compassionate point of view, or for instance, suppose my friend were to be having this problem, what would I say to this friend? And that that often can put you in a place where you can become sympathetic for what that person is dealing with for yourself in a way that you can't when you're just thinking of yourself, you know, when you're thinking of, of, of a friend having that problem. Yeah, that reminds me of what you said earlier about the conversation that you had with your with your girlfriend, where she was like, "What would you say to a client who is going through this?" and yeah. and it pulled you right out of the the throes of the argument that you were in. Yes. While we're on the subject, I'm wondering if you. I know that you train therapists in collaborative couples therapy, and I'm I'm wondering if you could describe a little bit, like, how is collaborative couples therapy different than what someone might experience if they weren't um, doing collaborative couples therapy? And and I guess you could describe it from the perspective of someone participating in the therapy. How would their experience be different? Well, let's see. Um, the In some way, um, all us therapists do, um, do a lot of very similar things and have different terms and ways of thinking about it. The way I think about it is... Um, whatever the partners are struggling with, I want to try to turn it into the most intimate conversation I can that they could be having with each other. And to achieve this, I very often um, move over, kneel next to them, and talk as if I were that person talking to the partner. And so I would show them then the kind of um, conversation, elegant conversation, where they'd be not blaming one another and not withdrawing, but really dealing with the issues and talking in a compassionate way about it. You know, so for instance, I might, speaking for one partner, I might say something like, what a, what a shame that we finally found a person after all these years 
that we can really that we really can feel good with. You said the same to me, and I certainly feel that towards you. That we have to be struck by this horrible problem that may be a deal breaker, where you want a baby quite intensely, and I can't see myself as having one. What what a tragedy it would be that, the, that this thing is going to break us up when we finally found someone that that we really can love. All right, so making a statement like that for them, I'd be taking even an impossible situation and something that might end the relationship. But but even then, there's a way of having an intimate conversation where you're sad together about it and empathic together about it rather than arguing and blaming one another. Or in order not to have a fight, withdrawing and not talking about it. Yeah, there is something that you uh, wrote describing your position as a therapist that that you're not necessarily taking a stand for the couple staying together or splitting up that that your role is really to have them um, really be in that moment together and as as intimate and connected as possible even if they're having a conversation about well, you just offered something that was maybe a deal breaker, but it was like, even if they're having a conversation about potentially ending the relationship, that they could do it from a perspective that's where they're each recognizing each other's uh, leading edge feelings, as opposed to the symptom feelings, which would be all of the anger and and um, betrayal or those kinds of secondary things that come out when people are talking about endings. Yeah, so I'd... Um you know, my focus is on having an intimate conversation about whatever's going on rather than whether to save the relationship or not. Um, so that, say, there's one person, uh, this happens often, who wants to end the relationship and the other one who wants to continue it. And I can still try to have, try to show a better conversation they could have with one another. And um, so I'd help the person who wants to continue it talk about his, her ache uh, about it ending and as well as anger. But, you know, I bring anger into it by reporting it rather than just saying angry things. So in speaking for this person, I might say, um, I'm heartbroken that you want to end this relationship. And I got to tell you, I get into an, a pretty angry state sometimes about it. And I'm in, I'm in that state now. All right, so that'd be my way of, you know, it, that person is angry at the moment of trying to make it a, a conversation um, using whatever is happening at the moment. Um, and then if the other person gets defensive and starts making it, um, so, well, let's say in, in an example of um, a, a couple where they come in after, say the husband has had an affair and then the wife is complaining and um about it and being really angry at him and say that the, the, the husband is saying, well, um, you know, I've, I've changed now and can't we think about the future? Mm -hmm. Go on and try to talk her out of her anger. So right. I might that never, that never happens. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I might speak for the husband and say, I feel so bad and so guilty about what I put you through. I'm realizing now just how much that um, I can hardly tolerate hearing how distressed you are, which is why I'm trying to talk you out of it and get you to think about the future. All right, so I'm having 
I'm hoping that he, that he'll like my saying that for him rather than feeling undercut. Um, and I'm then taking this kind of unmanageable situation and trying to turn it into as much of an intimate conversation as you can in such a situation. Right. And it seems like, and maybe you can tell me if this is true for you in the work that you do with couples, but it seems like the more that you're getting people to that place of having the intimate conversation, then you're getting them out of uh, the state of being triggered. You're getting them back to that place where they're feeling more resourceful and creative and and that's where they can actually begin to repair from uh, these like either uh, really serious things that can happen like infidelity or repairing just from, you know, blowing up about who's doing more housework. Yeah, a relationship is how you deal with difficult moments. And so I'm giving them example after example of how ideally to deal with the difficult moments that they bring in. And uh, the idea would be that they get a picture of how to do that from the, all the examples I've been giving them. Yeah, and, and what, do you, what do you tend to notice in how that creates a shift for the couples that you work with? Well, the, the first thing is they come in reporting, well, we know we haven't fought so much, but we're still not close. Um, so then you work on um, conversations they could have with one another. Well, yeah, so, that, so what I would be doing at first, I guess, would be to um, turn that an angry exchange into one where they're sort of seeing each other's point of view a little bit more. Um, but then if, if, if they're not feeling close, then I would help them with the conversations that would produce closeness, at least close conversations. Now, whether the feelings will come along with it or not, then sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Yeah, there. that reminds me of two things that I really want to ensure that we cover, and, and I think they're related. The first is this question of how to fight well. So it's not that we necessarily have this goal of eliminating conflict, but there are these clues that surface through arguing that actually give people this valuable insight into how their relationship could grow or how they could understand each other better. Could you talk a little more about that? Yeah, when you have a fight, um, two things happen. You say, kind, you say all kinds of things you don't mean and leave out you know, all the positive things. And the second thing is that you say some things that you do mean, but you've been holding back saying in order to keep the peace or just to be friendly. Um, so the ideal would be to um, recover from the, the exaggerated things that we're saying, but also uh, later on to milk the fight for the some undercurrent things that might be going on that, that need to be talked about. You know, so afterwards, um, uh, you know, one partner may go to the other and say, uh, well, you know, there's, um, there's a bunch of things you said about me and, and how, which of those were said in anger and which of those did you really mean? In particular, uh, did, you really, did you really mean that you um, don't think that I, you know, and whatever thing is? And they could... Um, they could get back into the fight, but um, then they'd have to deal with that. 
but they can they can have a real conversation where they bring out some uh, have uh, talk about some issues that are that are hard to get at otherwise. Hmm. Yeah, and that reminds me of this difficult situation, which and perhaps you can offer some insight about how to work with this, which would be um, one person in a couple having a lot of facility with talking about feeling and emotion and the other person not either not having that kind of skill or not even really wanting to go there being, um, you know, feeling like, well, if we, you know, why do we have to talk about our problems? Like that just makes our problems worse, that sort of thing. Um, so what could you offer if, if I have a listener and ideally, of course, you know, I think many people listening to the show listen together with their partner or they listen on their own, but then they say, Hey, you got to check this out. Um, but for, for those people who are listening and are like, yeah, you know, I don't, I can't imagine ever having that conversation with my partner cause they don't, they don't like to talk. Um, and I want, I want to hear what their like, what their leading edge feeling is, but I'm not sure I'll ever get that from them. It, you know. What would you offer them? Yeah, well, <clears throat> there's um, there's um, we have, we have to tease out two things that are happening. I mean, some people are from their family, whatever it is, just don't want to talk about feelings, and it makes them kind of nervous and uncomfortable. Um, what I usually find, however, is that the 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 person who is saying I want to talk about feelings um, is 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 often saying it in some kind some type of critical way that the, um, well, let me see, the, let me, let me, let me uh, elaborate on that too. That, that often uh, when, when one person hears from the other, we need to have a talk, the other person thinks, well, now, what is she going to criticize me for now? And so um, uh, what, what, what a talk means is, you know, a complaint that then the person feels criticized for and discouraged about. And um, to, but to look at the other side, um, one of the big problems in relationships is what do you do when you have a complaint? Mm. You can't think of a way of saying this thing that's important to you that isn't going to just make the other person feel bad and get them defensive or angry in return. And it's, it's, a, tricky, it's a tricky issue. And so that's, um, you know, we need to talk often means um, you, you can empathize with both people. You can, you can empathize with the person is, who's, who's feeling, uh-oh, I'm going to, um, what have I done now? How am I going to deal with this? You know, I don't, I've got this unhappy wife. Now, this is a stereotype, but there's a certain truth to it that John Gottman found, that the person who has a complaints mostly is in a heterosexual relationship is the um, is the woman, and um, and the man's main complaint is that the woman has complaints. <laughs> um, but you can empathize with both because uh, certainly it's certainly true that you need a way to talk about things that are distressing you about the relationship that works out. And so the wife, in this stereotype, needs to have a way. And on the other hand, the husband needs to have a way of having the conversation where he just doesn't feel um, scolded is the word that sometimes used. So that's, um, now in a, um, 
in, in my office, what I would do with that is I would um, restate what the uh, what the wife says to, to make it less an accusation, and I'd um, restate the um, the husband's point of view and, and give words to, to his struggle in a way that he likes and feels some relief in. Um, but it's I, I guess mostly it's a tricky situation that we need to appreciate um, both partners' position in. Yeah, it reminds me of something that we spoke about recently on the show with Sheila Heen around, um, she's one of the co-authors of Difficult Conversations from the, the Harvard Negotiation Project. And, um, and they talk about this strategy of taking the, I think they call it the third, the third um, way or the third story. And um, so it would be entering a situation like that and already saying like, okay, I know in this situation, like I have something I want to talk about and I know that you are potentially hearing this as like a complaint or I'm scolding you and, and, um, and I really want to understand your perspective better on this thing. And, um, so you're voicing, like voicing the other person's perspective as well as your own, or at least your best guess at it as a way of, uh, clearly it's, it's going meta and and helping everyone feel safe and held so that there there's like room for their viewpoint um, in that well, kind of conversation. That's an excellent example of what I'm what I'm talking about. So what you do then is you would um, anticipate the struggle of the person you're talking to. Um, in if if you're going to bring up something and give words to that for that person. As well as, I guess, words for yourself, which is, um, you know, this, but this is something that I want to find some way to talk to you about that isn't just a criticism. You can um, get on the meta level, as she said. I call it the platform, getting on the platform. Yeah, and I can already, like, with, with even within me, I could imagine, like, my partner Chloe, if she came to me and said, um, and actually she's generally pretty good at this, but if she said, yeah, you know, I want to... I want to talk about how um, the state of things in our kitchen, like it's kind of messy. And, and, uh, and I already know that you're going to feel like you're like, cause I know you're really busy and there's lots going on and we're trying to do all these things. And, and so we're, we already have this problem of how to find time. Um, so, I, but we have to solve it somehow. Like already I'm like, yeah, you're right. We have to solve it versus feeling like, how I would have felt if my viewpoint hadn't been acknowledged, which would have been something more like, where am I going to find the time to, you know, wash another dish or something like that? That is um, such a superb example. That is really good. Um, the, the way I think about that in general is what a fight is, is uh, two people who feel too unheard to listen. And in which each person is presenting their point of view um, and the other person is presenting their point of view and um, neither is acknowledging the other's point of view. So if you start right in by acknowledging the other person's point of view, how the other person might hear what you're going to say, you're, um, you, you solve the problem. You've, you've introduced it without getting the fight going. Yeah. Yeah. I'm imagining, I just had this funny thought of like, as an exercise, a couple 
like having the same fight they always have, but from the other person's perspective. Um, so where they're, they're trying to argue for the other person and, um, you know, I could, and I could see them doing that also, like, you know, where it's not so much like an exercise, but more like every statement that they make saying like, and I'm, I'm pretty sure this is how you're going to hear this. You know, is that, am I right? You know, is, is that how you're taking it? And, um, but it could be pretty funny if you, cause we know each other so well, typically in relationship, that's, you know, these fights, they're things we have over and over again, maybe in a different context, but it shouldn't be that hard for someone to, to actually really speak to the other person's perspective. Yeah, those those, those sound like ex- excellent things to do. Now you've got to be prepared for them to go s- south on you. <laughs> right. Sometimes when people try to represent the other person's point of view, they slip into their own real quickly. Mm. But mm. If they don't. They can and and ideally, as you said, they can even laugh about it. Um, that that really changes the whole mood and tone of things. It's you know the kind of repair that Gottman talks about. Um. And then, let's see, the other one was the other task. Oh, yeah, to um, assume when you talk, when you bring something up, you, you, you just automatically think, that, well, now how is this person going to hear it? How is this kind of person going to feel criticized? And how can I anticipate that and bring that up? Um, that, is, that sounds wonderful. And again, I prepare for the possibility of it going awry where um, – you know, by the time you bring something up, you might have built up some feeling about it. And um, to bypass your own anger about it might be hard to do and it might sneak through and, and, and ruin the whole thing. So you need to prepare for the possibility it may not work out, but it certainly sounds like the way to go to try it. Yeah, yeah. And I could see, like, acknowledging the anger right at the beginning and maybe even acknowledging the you know, the fear that whatever is underlying that anger, the, the part of you that's been repressed or um, the wow. worry that you have. Wow, yes, this is wonderful. We got a whole theory here. Okay. <laughs> so you'd say, um, I'm, um, I've got some, some anger about this, so I may, not, I may not be saying this in the best possible way. You know, you could you know, have that person kind of acknowledge that. And, um, and, now, if, if the person has the, the wisdom to know this, they could go further, as, you, as you're saying, and say, and, you know, behind that is, um, is the fear that or the wish that one of the things I do in a couple theory, which people can do for themselves, as you're saying, is when you have a complaint, you can sometimes turn it into a wish or a fear, which, if you express that, goes over better. Mm-hmm. And so, as you're saying, you could you could bring it, you know, behind my complaint of such and such, is the is the the picture I have of this ideal that I have of how I want our relationship to go, based on either how my things went in my family. I know that I know that's not fair, but I have that wish anyway that it be done in this particular kind of way. Would be. Um, taking pressure off it, expressing it as a wish you have rather than as something the other person is doing wrong. Right. And, and also the acknowledgement of the anger, I could see, you know, you're almost inviting the other person to say, yeah, you could have said that better, but 
like not making that an issue. Um, whereas that can so often become an issue in, in, in fights with couples. I think the, uh, you know, if you had said that better then I would have responded better. So, um, it, it's already surfacing that, um, for yeah, well, that'd people. Be, that'd be great for that to happen. That means the other person, your partner, um, is doing the same thing and uh, talking on the meta level and talking about their response to it and, and, and then acknowledging, well, I could have heard that if it was better and I, I could have given you a better response. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if, uh, if you listening, if this is the first episode of ours, you've, uh, of relationship alive that you've heard, then I hope you've found some great suggestions and strategies here. And if you need more preparation, then definitely go back and backfill. And if you've been listening all along, I mean, where this is going to be episode 62 or 63, then my hope for you is that you already are starting to embody some of those, those skills in, um, and that this uh, episode offers for you some real great refinements on on how you have these um, fights in a more constructive way. Um, I'm feeling more prepared, um, certainly, the next time that I have to have that conversation about, let's see, it probably wouldn't actually be about the dishes. It would be about the laundry that I have to fold. That's in a big pile in our bedroom floor right now. So yes, yes. that conversation is coming. Yes. Um, Dan, I really appreciate your taking so much time to chat with us today. And I'm wondering if you could just tell our listeners, um, both, uh, you know, the couples who are listening, what you, what kind of offerings you have. Um, we've mentioned your book after the honeymoon, which is just so great and full of so many different angles on the relationship dynamic. Um, and you know, we could have another hour long conversation easily. In fact, I hope that we do at some point in the future, um, about, you know, um, fantasies in relationship or the pursuer distancer dynamic and all of those things. You talk about them in your book and it's great, but, um, maybe we could start there and then you could also offer, um, what kinds of things are you doing for therapists who want to find out more about how to get trained in collaborative couples therapy? Very good. Um, thanks very much for the, that invitation. Yes, uh, now I'm located in the San Francisco Bay Area and specifically in Oakland. And um, there's a couple of things I do for couples and for therapists out of my office home in Oakland. Twice a year with my wife, who's also a therapist, we have a couples workshop. Uh, the next one's going to be in April. We just had one um, for five couples and um, where we talk about, you know, all the things that um, I, I've learned in my 40 years of doing couple therapy and how, how you can apply it to your own relationship. Um, also, twice a year, I do um, a collaborative couple therapy intensive for therapists. Um, you can get that information from my um, website, um, which is www.danwild.com. And um, I also have for, for therapists a, uh, a newsletter where I send out, you know, every month or so uh, comments about my particular, about my approach and how to use it. Um, and I think that's, yes, that's, that's, that's pretty much it. 
Great. Well, we will have links to your site and uh, to your books as well uh, in the detailed show notes for this episode. And if you want to download the show guide for this episode, it's very easy to do. You can text the word passion to the number 33444 and just follow the instructions. And I will send you a link where you can download the show guide for today's episode and for, uh, for all the other episodes. Uh, and you can also visit neilsatin.com slash while and that's dan's last name and it's spelled w-i-l-e um so you can visit uh that and and download the uh just click the the button for downloading the show guide there um and we'll have all the detailed show notes we've covered so much ground in this episode and um so i'll make sure that the the important points are there in the um in the show guide for all of you listening um, Dan, when you were talking about your um, workshop for couples, it inspired this question in me. I hope we have time for one more, which is when you gather together these five couples um, to do the this intensive um, fun retreat, what is the what is something that you're most excited about like this this knowledge or technology or um, strategy? that you're most excited to impart to the couples that come to work with you? Well, it's, um, it's pretty much this meta level that we were talking about at the end of the program. So that in the first part of the workshop, we go over all the boggles that couples can get into pursuer distancer and things such as the thing you really attracted you to your partner also has problematic elements and standing back and getting an appreciation of that as well as getting an appreciation of what triggers you and what triggers your partner as well as getting an appreciation of what's going on in the silent partner's mind you know the one who's talking less um, why that person talks less why it, in some ways it makes sense that person is talking less you know what, what's reasonable about that um, the whole idea being to get a, um, a, a compassionate view of yourself and your partner. Um, the way the workshop works is um, mostly it's we give a little talk about one of these things and then have the couples um, separately go off and discuss the pertinence of that issue to their relationship. And then it's a weekend, um, six hours each Saturday and Sunday. And the second, uh, um, like there's no pressure at all to confide anything to the general group. But often by the end of the second day of this workshop, uh, people are feeling very comfortable um, in, and, and, talk, and talk about uh, their relationship. And, we, and, and have an example, go through an example of a recovery conversation that they could have where they deal with something or a commitment they can make to, 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 to make to make a change. Mm. Yeah, it sounds so powerful. And, and I could, um, I could imagine a couple being really excited to go through one of these like recurring problems with you helping, helping them go meta, helping them voice the things that are the, the undercurrents of whatever it is that, that is going on. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. That's an important part of it. Also when, um, people break up into their, into their own couples. 
my, my wife and I go around and we um, help people or, or, who are struggling. And we do a bit of this speaking for them, uh, saying what they might say if they were to be talking more on the meta level, if they were to be talking about wishes and fears rather than complaints. And, and, and sort of give an example of how one of these elegant conversations could go. And that is a big part of, of the workshop. Yeah, great, great. And I'm I'm already imagining the the couples who are listening to this episode like going back and in their next fight saying, "Okay, what would like what would Dan Weil be whispering into my ear right now about what's about what's actually going on in my partner and and how can I voice that? Um which which might be a good way of of going metas, letting imagining Dan into the room with you. Um, yeah, I can see it working. Okay. <laughs> well, um, Dan Weil, thank you so much for being here with us again. And, um, I really appreciate your time and your wisdom and your contribution, not only to couples through your work directly with them and your books after the honeymoon, after the fight, I think is your other book. Is that right? Yes. And, um, and also your work training therapists, um, to help, um, improve the quality of care that people get when they actually do, um, go out f to get help. And, um, it, it's so much more valuable when the help they're getting is effective. And, and I appreciate the, um, the collaborative nature of your, of your work and, and how much I can see that fostering intimacy for couples. So thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.